0: Friends, welcome again. If you don't know me, I'm Pastor Gordon. Here at Grace, we're working through the Gospel of John together. And so if you have a Bible, I encourage you to follow along. We'll be looking at John chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. We're going to break out verses 12 through 14 for next week, probably. Um, so we're focusing on one aspect of this passage, because there's a lot of stuff going on in here. And this passage is particularly and practically relevant to one of the most common struggles that we experience, and certainly a struggle that I experience, which is anxiety, uncertainty, even doubt. It's good medicine, as we work through the Gospel of John, to periodically remember why John wrote the Gospel of John. So in John chapter 20, verse 31, he says, these are written so that you may believe, trust, rest, be assured of, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life, eternal life, new life, true life, the good life in his name. So these are the things that John is working towards. He wants us to believe in the Son of God so that we may have life. This life that comes by faith is not only a future hope, however. It's a present reality. And so here in the Upper Room Discourse, Jesus is encouraging his disciples to trust him now. Even, and I'd say especially, when things look beyond all hope. You have to remember that Jesus has now been saying several things that are extremely disconcerting to the disciples. And whether they had managed to put away from their mind the number of times that in the course of his ministry he had told them, I'm going to go and die, and that's the point of my ministry, they've either just shunted those memories off or kept them at bay, and now at the last moment he's now describing things like, one of you is going to betray me. I'm going to die, I'm going to leave, I'm going somewhere and you can't follow me. And when Peter insists, I'll go anywhere, he says, no, you can't and you won't, I need to do this. You have to imagine that their anxiety is running a little hot. Jesus encourages disciples to trust him now Even when things look beyond all hope. And the main idea for today's message, and I think of this passage, is trust Jesus to bring you to the Father. Trust Jesus to bring you to the Father. There are two parts to the main idea of this message, and you can see them in verse 1. So look at verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled and believe in God. Believe also in me. The goal of this passage is to give Christians assurance and to provoke an enduring faith. And at this point, I have to address you, if you're you're not a Christian this morning, welcome. Thank you for coming and spending some time with us. We're glad that you're here. This section from John 14 on is particularly and peculiarly relevant to Christians. That doesn't mean that you can't learn anything by it. You can. We're very glad that you're listening in. You can see the wonderful promises that Jesus offers to his people. But friends, I'm gonna be speaking specifically as though I'm talking to Christians. And sometimes I try and emphasize and move my language so that it's more inclusive. But Jesus is speaking specifically to his disciples at this point. And the promises that Jesus is offering to his disciples are for his disciples. So if you're a Christian this morning, listen in close. Trust Jesus to bring you to the Father. The goal of this passage is to give you assurance and to provoke an enduring faith. Look at the end of the section then in verse 10 and you'll note how that faith appears. It appears often. <laughs> in verse 10 he says, and you could if you if you have your bibles if you're into underlining or highlighting you could highlight these. Do you believe that I am in the Father? And then in verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or else believe on account of the works themselves. Finally, in verse 12, whoever believes in me will also do the work that I do. So you can see in verse one, he tells you, don't let your heart be troubled. How? Believe in me. And then stacks these promises as the one who believes in him. So friends, the opposite of a troubled heart is a trusting heart. And the remedy for anxiety is assurance. When I use the word assurance, I am actually using it in its technical sense. Christians speak of the doctrine of assurance. What we mean by that is our confidence that God will preserve us, God will save us, God will keep us from falling away in doubt. And so I'm not just speaking about that Jesus was saying nice things so that his apostles and disciples would feel better. What I mean is that Jesus is speaking words that if you believe them are part of God's purpose and plan to preserve you, to keep you, to allow and cause you to endure. So the remedy for anxiety is not just telling yourself nice things. The remedy for anxiety is the doctrine of assurance that God will keep you. So the goal of Jesus teaching here in this portion of the passage is to assure the disciples, to provoke a faithful response. He wants us to trust him to bring us to God. So let's work through this passage and let's trace out six reasons that we should not be troubled. Six reasons that we should trust and rest in Jesus. And the first is do not be troubled because there is a place for you in the Father's house. So look at verse two. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? The emphasis here on Christ's statement, as much as some of us might be accustomed to the KJV, in my father's house there are many mansions, the the emphasis of the word in the Greek here is not so much on the lavishness of the apartments, although they very well may be lavish, but on the location. That there is a room for you in the father's house. It's not just a room somewhere. It's not even just a nice room. It's where it is that matters. It's in the Father's house. This recalls the psalmist who says in Psalm 84, verse 10, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. The the psalmist there is concerned not with the lavishness or the exaltedness or the nobility of his appointment. He just wants to be in God's presence. When we traveled as a family, which we would do most often in the summer, typically my father would make reservations for us in advance so that we knew that after a long day of travel, we would have a bed to sleep on and a place to rest. Different ones of us probably feel at home to varying degrees in this world, depending on how the Lord has led us through this life. But a longing for home, a longing for a place to lay down and rest is almost universal. Almost everyone wants to belong somewhere. They want a place to call their own, where they are welcomed, where they are loved. And frankly, if you If you don't, it's it's probably because you haven't felt what it's like to not have that. And this is what Jesus promises to those who trust him. That every single disciple has a place in his father's house. That you don't need to be afraid that the end of the journey of this life as dusty, as weary, as tired, and as broken as you are like to be, by the time you get to the end, there is a room for you in my Father's house. You won't arrive and see no more space. That sign that was waiting for Joseph and Mary will not be waiting for you. There will be room in the Father's house. So first, do not be troubled There is a place for you in the Father's house. Second, do not be troubled because Jesus has prepared the place for you. Look at verse 2 again. In my Father's house are many rooms. (coughs) If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? The word here to prepare means to make ready. It can be used in a lot of different situations. It could be like if you have a group of soldiers who are waiting to, to go and do a mission, when, when the call comes in to go and do the mission, they make ready. It means they put on their armor, they, they get their, their weapons, they, they put things in place so that they're ready to do what they need to do. It could also be like you might make a room ready for someone to come stay with you. My sister-in-law is periodically staying with us while she works in Columbus. She's a traveling nurse and we have a space in our house if you've been there set aside it's prepared for her so that she can just show up at any time. That's her space, it's ready for. Her. So there's two elements here of how Christ must prepare our place. He must first remove all obstacles to our arrival. And second, he must provide us with relief. Jesus must go to the cross on our behalf. And that is in the big picture, what he's been talking about in this whole passage, he's speaking about he's going to the cross. This is the place that he's going that they can't come. This is the thing that he must do for them. So he must go to the cross, and that is part of preparing this place for them. If he doesn't go to the cross, they will not be ready to come. He must go to the cross and remove the obstacle of sin. He must remove the uncleanness that would otherwise necessarily prevent our entrance into that house. But he must do more than remove our obstacles. He must provide us with a host of things. Time would exhaust us to speak of all the things, but he must provide us with a new heart. He must provide us beyond that with righteousness that we do not possess and which we cannot affect. Friend, every single one of us stands in need of Christ to remove our sin and to give us righteousness to make us pleasing to God. But the wonderful news is that when Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, he means that he has done all that is required to make ready that place for us and us for that place. Friends, consider the goodness and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Just just for a moment, let your heart rest on the goodness and the sufficiency of Christ. He has paid for our stay by his life of perfect obedience. I had a friend when we were in Uray. Um, It was two, three years in. My wife and I were really uh, worn down. She'd had a a difficult time in the job that she was working at, um, and I was struggling with some stuff, and some friends banded together without telling us, and they paid for us to go and take a vacation in Montana for two weeks. Paid the whole thing. (laughs) Christ has looked ahead and he's seen what you need, and he has paid, he has paid entirely for the entire stay for all eternity in the Father's house. He has made absolute and complete provision. Think also how he has overcome every obstacle to our entrance by his death on the cross. Everything that you could conceive of as saying, well, Father, you haven't seen this bit of me. Oh, Father, you haven't seen this bit of me. Did you remember that I did this thing? Christ has seen it all. You can't disillusion God about you because he never had any illusions about you to begin with. He has overcome every obstacle to our entrance by his death on the cross. And then he goes beyond this and he clothes us with his own robes of righteousness. Reminds me of Jesus' parable of how how the, the, the wedding feast is set up and the... The folks that were originally invited don't wanna come. Ultimately he sends and he brings in the poor and the beggars and they come and they don't have anything to wear to the feast. And he says, it's fine, clothe them with my robes. We have nothing to bring to the feast, but Christ will supply us everything we need. Even now he intercedes for us so as to supply us with every strength, every gift and every grace that we need to live and enjoy his house so when your heart asks you as it almost must inevitably but will there be space for me in god's kingdom the answer is yes jesus made a place for you in the father's house and when your heart asks but will i be welcomed will i belong will i have what i need will i be suited for his service will i find my apartments pleasing The answer is yes. Jesus himself, who knows you better than you know yourself and who loves you perfectly and completely, has gone ahead of you and he has prepared your way. Whatever objection might have been raised against you, our sins, our weaknesses, our failings, our incapacities, he has answered all of them by his cross. And whatever cost might be required of you, he has provided by his life. Everything you need for life in God's household, He has and He will provide. Do not be troubled. Jesus has prepared a place for you. Thirdly, prepared a place for you. Thirdly, do not be troubled because you know the way. Jesus is the way. So look at verses four through six. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Friends, if Jesus' disciples could not follow him to the cross, which we know they could not, just as in chapter 13, verse 33, he had said, "'As I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, "'Where I'm going, you cannot come.'" So if Jesus' disciples could not follow him to the cross, they will be able to follow him after and because of the cross. In one sense, Jesus is going to the cross, and in that sense, where he's going, They cannot come. But in another sense, where Jesus is ultimately going is to the Father. So if you let your eyes uh, look down to verse 28, Jesus says, You heard me say to you, "I I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because... I am going to the father, the father is greater than I. So in one sense, he's going to the cross. But in another sense, he's going to the father. And he's going to the father to prepare a place for them. And in this sense, they do know the way. And by the power of the cross, they can and they will follow. And that's what last week's sermon almost was entirely spent on, that when Jesus says to Peter, Afterwards, you will follow me. He's not just speaking about Peter's martyrous death on an inverse cross. He means that as a result of the work of the cross in the lives of his disciples, they will be able to follow him and come to the place that he is ultimately going. They will be able to come to the kingdom. So Thomas's question, we have to, I mean, I, I understand him. It's probably best understood literally I don't think he is speaking spiritually to Jesus. Thomas is very tactile. Thomas likes really hard evidence. We know this. He might be like the millennial, insisting that if he doesn't have an address, he has nothing to plug into his Google Maps. And as a consequence, he cannot get to where Jesus is going. Like, g- Give me the address. And he's deeply uncomfortable when Jesus says, look, just follow me. But joking aside. Thomas' question demonstrates that he's thinking literally, not spiritually. And so Jesus is speaking about a journey traveled by faith, the sense of walking by faith and not by sight. He's speaking about something much harder and much longer than anything Thomas could have imagined. And in in a sense, this is like when the travelers of old would go on a road, they'd be told, Follow this road. This road will take you to the destination. They didn't have a satellite that said, yes, we can see. See the road? It goes here. It gets They didn't have anything except, well, this person that I trusted said to go on this road. And if I follow this road, it will take me there. Many of us grow anxious about the road that we're trying to follow Christ on. We think, what if I do this? Or what if I do that? Will I lose my way? And it's right, it's good and right to be concerned about our choices and our path through life. We should think carefully and wisely about what we do and what we choose. But Jesus is reminding us that when we walk by faith, there is immense freedom within Christ. Yes, there is only one way to the Father. No one gets to the Father any way than by the way of the cross by trusting in the person, the word, and the work of Jesus Christ. But, but there is immense freedom within Christ himself. Friends, if you think like, I've had a number of folks come to me and they'll say, oh, well, should I move to this place or should I move to that place? Which one is the will of God? Or should I, should I do this or should I do that? Eat this or eat that? And there's so many of those questions that friends, as long as you're not intending to move to this place in order to steal or you know, commit adultery, which yeah, that would be wrong. But outside of obvious moral prohibitions, just choose, just choose. There's immense freedom within Christ himself. As long as your motivations are not in opposition to God's law, And if you're basing your decisions on how to bring God glory and love other people, then just pick one. God's will for you is not like a straitjacket. It's not like a train track. That if you just lifted one wheel off of it in the wrong direction would imminently bring catastrophe. The will of God for you is your sanctification. Sanctification. The will of God for you is your contentment in Christ. The will of God for you is your joyful and free obedience to his son. God is vastly greater than any of our feeble plans. You can trust him. Trust him to bring you to him. He is able to turn a king's heart like a river in the palm of his hand. He says that none of his purposes can ever be thwarted in Isaiah 46. Leaning into, trust, the amazing providence of Almighty God. Now I think I may be right. If you're at all like me and you grew up listening to this passage preached, most of us heard this passage preached entirely on the phrase in verse 6. That he is the way, the truth, and the life. And the passage usually got preached as being about the exclusivity of Christ, that he is the only way. And that's certainly true. That's a true statement. But the more I looked at this passage, I don't really think that's what Jesus is emphasizing in this passage. However much our world may wish it otherwise, there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved but Jesus' name. And so it's true. Jesus is the only way to the Father. Only by trusting in the person, the word, and the work of the God of the Bible, to whatever degree he's revealed himself to us. Only by that may we be saved. But Jesus is not, I don't think, saying so much, make sure you find the right way. There are a lot of other attempts and ways. That's true. I don't think, though, that's what he's emphasizing here. I think instead he's emphasizing, I am the way. Follow me and you will get to the Father. He is the great shepherd. In other words, all we need, all we have, let me get this right. In other words, we have all we need to travel the road of God's grace and to reach our true home. Our map is accurate. And most of the time in life, even if we don't see them, the signs are clearly labeled. The way can be difficult, and sometimes we do get confused. But these things are owing to our own condition and to the brokenness of the world around us, not to any insufficiency in Christ. In short, if our heart trembling says, you say there is a wonderful place for me in God's house, well and good, but how will I know if I'm on the right path? Jesus says, do not be troubled, follow me, and you'll be fine. I am the way. So forth. do not be troubled, because Jesus will bring you home to himself. Do not be troubled, because Jesus will bring you home. Look at verse 3. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. and will take you to myself. Where I am, you may be also. And this is really the root of the Christian's heart, is it not? Heaven is simply not heaven if Christ is not there. In fact, that can end up being a good litmus test for your faith. That statement, heaven is not heaven if Christ is not there. The sweetness of heaven is the presence of God. Listen to Revelation 21, three through four. John describes many benefits he says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So if you haven't picked up on it he said three times the most important element of heaven is that God will be with his people and that is why and that is how he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away because God will be with us the effective connection between heavens joy and And the absence of all sorrow is the presence of the living God. That's what takes away our pain, our tears, our suffering, and our sorrows. So here is a test for faithful affections. If you are coming to Christ, ultimately not for Christ himself, but for pleasure. If you're coming to Christ because you think that He will give you in this kingdom or the next your perfect workshop, your favorite boat, your best car, your perfect body, your excellent, most desired skill set, perfect family, then Christ's word will not give you rest. When He says to you, Don't let your heart be troubled, believe in me. You're going to be left wondering well are you going to give me the thing that i really want but if christ says i am the way and i've prepared the place and i'm the one that's in the place and you're coming to me and if that's what you want oh The Christian soul is ultimately content with Christ. It is Christ that the Christian soul wants. The Christian soul is not chiefly concerned about what kind of place God provides, but whether Christ will be there, whether Christ will be with us forevermore. There's two elements that we need to gather from this point. First is that the mark, (coughs) pardon me, that the mark of genuine devotion is the desire to be with Christ above all else. So Paul will say in Philippians four twelve through 13, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. You should always quote this next line with this verse. <laughs> I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The key to Christian contentment is satisfaction in Christ. You see that? The key to Christian contentment is satisfaction in Christ and enduring confidence that even when Christ is all I have, Christ is all I need. So first, genuine devotion is the desire to be with Christ above all else. But secondly, we can be confident that Jesus himself is the good shepherd who always comes to bring each and every one of his sheep home. There is not a single soul who has been marked by the blood of the cross that will be lost on the road to heaven's shore. And friend, if you are in sorrow at the moment over another dear soul, someone close and precious to your heart who is apparently lost, meaning to look at them right now, you'd think they're lost. While you are being faithful to Christ's commands and while you earnestly strive to call your fellow sinner back to grace, friend, trust Jesus to rescue his straying sheep. He promised them, didn't he? He said I will come for you and I'll bring you to be where I am if they are one of Christ's he will come to them he will bring them to himself and he will do so before all is lost you may not even live to see it but Christ always brings his sheep so is there space for you in Christ's house yes will I be welcomed yes how will I know the road? What if I lose my way? Jesus said in the song, as it were, if I am lost, then you will come to me. If you get lost, Jesus will bring you home. And You may say to me, these comforts are wonderful, but they are so far away. They stand off at a distance at my death or at the second coming. What is causing unholy turmoil in my soul now is that I don't know what's best for my children. My marriage is fragile and unaffectionate. My health is failing. I can't stand my job. I'm so lonely. If Christ doesn't want my heart to be troubled now, is there some encouragement for faith that is closer than the second coming? I think this is what stands behind what Philip says. Look at what Philip says in verse 8. He says, Thomas has just said, oh, well, we don't know the way, so we don't know where you're going, so obviously we don't know the way. Philip then sort of eases up. He says, well, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. I, this might be a reach, but he doesn't say show us the Father someday. I think he means show us the father now if you can't tell us where you're going the way thomas means then show the father to us that will be quote enough this enough there that you see is the same enough that paul would say in second corinthians 12 9 or i shouldn't say that paul would say that god says to paul where he says my grace is sufficient for you so when folks that that would be enough he's not saying like it would sort out all our problems he means It would be enough for us to make it in faith. And Jesus assures us, this is not only a coming reality, but it's a present and indwelling glory. Which is our fifth major point, don't be troubled. Because if you have Jesus, you have the Father. Look at verses nine through 11, Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me Philip? So across these verses from verse seven to 11, you can see that the emphasis is clear. Beginning of verse seven, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. Definite connection. Second half of verse seven, from now on you do know him and have seen him. Verse nine, whoever has seen me has seen the father. Or verse 10, do you not believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? Verse 11, believe me that I am in the father and the father is in me. So he is hammering this home. Friends, the human heart was made for rest in God, and we want to see him. We want to know him. And we say, and it's right, that to see him and to know him would be enough for us. Jesus assures his disciples that in seeing Jesus, we do see and we do know the Father you may say well that was all very fine and well for jesus to say to philip philip was sitting right in front of him but what about me he said jesus is not here now How can I be sure that I have Jesus? If it's by having Jesus that I know that I have the Father, and it's by having Jesus that I know that I have the way, and if it's by having Jesus that I know he'll come and fetch me if I get lost, and if it's by having Jesus that I know that I'll be allowed into heaven's gates, and if it's by having Jesus that I know that every obstacle is removed, how can I know that I have him? Do not be troubled. Sixth. Because Jesus is with you now. He's helping you by his spirit. Now, we have to jump, let your eyes go down to verses 16 through 20. Well, come, don't worry, we're not skipping the hard verses 12, 13, 14, we'll come back to them next week. Go down to verse 16. Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. So when it says at the end of verse 17, he dwells with you and will be in you, he means I am with you now physically. He's standing there talking to Philip. I'm with you now physically, but I will be In you with you spiritually when the Holy Spirit comes and this is why Paul talks this way about the Holy Spirit in Romans 8 verses 9 through 10 sort of his grand passage on assurance he says you are not in the flesh but in the spirit if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him but if Christ is in you Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. So we can't address this particular topic thoroughly now, but suffice to say that when Jesus describes the Holy Spirit as a helper, that does not mean a subordinate. It doesn't mean an inferior assistant. And frankly, I was running out of good English synonyms because a lot of them have gone in a different direction of late. comforter which originally is from the Latin "cum forte" to bring strength, to encourage, to strengthen people. Now, it, more often, it probably reminds us of like a warm blanket, or you know, a do-gooder at a funeral, or someone saying nice things. Even advocate, which is a little bit closer, implying a legal defense. And if you've ever been in sincere legal trouble and you've been helped by an advocate, that might connote something to you that would be closer to what we mean, but even that sometimes seems impersonal. That's my lawyer. And the best illustration I can come up with is how Eve, Adam's helper, his helpmeet, completes Adam. Adam, in his estate, even prior to the fall, in a perfect garden, in a perfect world, himself unstained by sin, is not good, says God. He lacks something, he is alone, he is incomplete, he needs someone. Sometimes we'll say our better half, for those of us who are married. But this only approximates the wonder and the goodness that is God, the Holy Spirit. For it is only by the Spirit that we ever come to life. It's only by the Spirit that we ever have life. It's only by the Spirit that we will ever walk in faith. Indeed, whatever good we do, we do it by the strength and grace of God worked out in us by his Spirit. So when Jesus says that it's better that he go away, he means it. Jesus has gone away physically precisely so that he can be near to all of his own, not just the 11 that were in that room. He hasn't just not left the 11 orphans, he has not left you an orphan, he has come to you. He is right now, in and through his spirit, more interested in and more caring about your parenting, your marriage, your singleness, your failing health or job or loneliness than you can imagine, because he didn't come to you as an observer, he came to you as a helper. Friends, if you trust in Christ, then Christ is with you now. He is with you now in the Holy Spirit of God. He is the one who grows our love for God and godliness and others. He is the one who convicts us of sin. He is the one who brings God's word to our mind and strengthens our hands and our will to joyful obedience. He is the one who applies the remedies of Christ to our soul. He is the one who upholds our life for he is the spirit of Christ himself. In him, Christ will always be with his people now and to the end of the age. So briefly, we need to apply this and then conclude. I can think of so many ways that the doctrine of assurance can help you. Knowing the goodness of Jesus can help you keep to the path of righteousness and avoid the deceitful temptations of sin. Sin is always going to offer you and say, yes, I know that that promise seems very far off, very distant, and very untrustworthy. But what I've got for you right here, right now, is way tastier and way better. And even if the other thing sounds better, this is right here. You can see it. Friend, a doctrine of Christian assurance lets you look at that and say, no, that is less certain than what my Lord has promised me. That is less enduring than what Christ has given me. What Christ has given me is better and more certain than anything I can see with my eyes because his spirit is in my very being. Secondly, knowing and trusting the promise of Jesus can calm your heart and instruct your tongue in a polarizing culture and in a social economy of rage. We live in a world that drives itself on anger, vitriol, and anxiety. Political candidates who seek to gather your support simply by making you anxious, upset, or concerned. And how much of our social media is largely engaged with promulgating and moving about and shifting around large amounts of anxiety. The promise of Jesus Christ can calm your heart. This world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. And it can instruct your tongue in a world that just runs on anger to speak out of the abundance of kindness and compassion that's in Christ. Thirdly, knowing and relying on Jesus' provision can free you from the pursuit of worldly wealth and can free you to sacrificial giving and service. If you know that Jesus has prepared a place for you, a place for you, with all that you need to enjoy and delight in his eternal kingdom, then you can willingly choose a path through this life that's not going to bring you the same kind of success or fame or possessions or happinesses. You can sacrifice for Jesus if you know that Jesus has ensured your good. Fourthly, knowing and relying on Jesus' utter and absolute welcome can free you from pursuing the constant and total approval of your peers or your social group. If you know that Jesus is always going to be waiting with open arms at the household of God to receive you, it does not in any ultimate sense then matter what every other person around you thinks about you. For Christ has given you welcome. Christ has received you as his own. You are his son or his daughter. Never let that slip from your heart. Fifthly, trusting Jesus to bring you to the Father will free you from legalism, free you from pride, self-loathing, and despair. Trusting Jesus to bring you to God will give you unshakable peace and unimpeachable joy. If Jesus is the one that's gonna bring me to God the Father, then I don't need to make sure that I've gotten every last little rule done and right and kept and perfect, because Christ will bring me to the Father. And I needn't stand up as though I'm the one that got to the father. I'm not and I never would be. Christ brought me. And it can free you from self-loathing. You might say, I don't deserve to be brought to God. But if Christ brings you, you're worthy. And it can free you from despair. There's no way. I'll never make it. Friend, Christ will come to you and bring you to himself. So friend, I want you to go home encouraged. I want you to go home reminded that if you trust in Jesus, do not be troubled. Instead, trust Jesus to bring you to the Father because there is a place for you in the Father's house. Jesus made it ready. Friend, do not let your heart be troubled. Jesus has shown you the way. Jesus is the way. Friend, do not be troubled. Jesus will bring you to himself. Friend, do not be troubled. Jesus and the Father are one. If you have Jesus, you have the Father. Friend, do not let your heart be troubled because Jesus is with you now and he will always be with you by his spirit. Amen? Let's pray. Almighty God, do now condescend to your weak flock and comfort the afflicted souls you find. Speak meaningfully into our hearts these rich and wonderful truths. O God, plant beneath our feet the solid rock of the assurance of Jesus Christ that if we give up lands or families or riches or kingdoms, yet you will restore to us those very things and more besides you will give us yourself in the next kingdom, and that even now, it's the light of your spirit that lights our path. Oh God, comfort us by your word, comfort us by your spirit, assure us of your goodness, and bring us with all your saints into that eternal kingdom, where you will wipe away every tear, and where you will be with us, and we will be your people, and you will be our God. We trust you, Father. Jesus' name.